We are starting out, though, talking about uh, what was announced yesterday, recommendations for a $2.8 million grant to Vancouver Coastal Health. This from the city city of Vancouver. It's going to be discussed at council coming up a little bit later this month. This is to enhance urgent mental health services in the city. And these details were announced at a a news conference yesterday afternoon featuring Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Identified, we identified that we had, you know, a, a humanitarian crisis going on in our city, a mental health crisis going on in our city, and something had to be done. And so we we provided the vision that we wanted to deal with this, uh, you know, these challenges in an empathetic and effective way, and that meant throwing more resources towards programs like CAR 87 and 88. He also said that this grant is the first phase of hiring the 100 mental health nurses and police officers. And these were funds that were earmarked as part of a motion that happened, uh, was put forward last year. That's directing the city to allocate at least $8 million for more officers and nurses. So what is the reaction to this announcement? Joining us now is Manakshi Mano, criminalization and policing campaigner with the Pivot Legal Society. Thank you so much for taking some time and for joining us today. Thanks so much, Joe. What is your response? This is a plan that we knew about before, and this is something that Mayor Ken Sim campaigned, talking about the hiring of more nurses and officers and trying to address mental health. What is your reaction to this? Well, I know that we're in a long-standing crisis regarding access to mental health services in Vancouver at least 10 years. Um, and any investment in the public health system is, of course, something to be celebrated. We are in two pandemics, of course, but this funding, which is $2.8 million, is less than 1% of the VPD's annual budget. Um, and beyond that, I think it's still investing in the wrong framework, which is police-based partnerships. And why do you say that, that that's the wrong place to be investing? Well, Pivot's position is that these kinds of dollars and resources are best suited to programming that involves peers and people with lived experience themselves who can actually support people who don't traumatize them um, and also who don't resort to violence, including lethal violence, in the course of a, quote, wellness check. Right. but And you're addressing some of what we have seen, and certainly we've been talking about this in the news, but, and there are, I mean, unfortunate doesn't even begin to explain it. Those are in, incidents that sh- should never happen, but that's, is it, is it fair to kind of suggest that that's the norm? Well, I mean, it's something that's happened across Canada, including in police forces in the lower mainland of BC, where wellness checks have turned fatal. Um, in both Maple Ridge and North Vancouver come to mind um, last year, the death of Danny in North Van, who was killed during a wellness check. So I think it is something that we need to maintain when we're thinking about expanding police involvement in mental health care. What if the focus was more on mental health nurses as far as uh, um, care workers in that sense or or people with that kind of training uh, that would be kind of the face of or the the first line of a wellness check? Yeah, I think that um, trained clinicians who are trauma-informed to understand stigma related to mental health um, because it takes a lot to speak out and ask for help. Um, that's a great response. Um, but I really do think we need to invest in peers, in 
in trained clinicians, but this first phase of funding that's been announced really is about developing further police partnerships in the healthcare system. But but if the partnerships are with, like you or you talk about clinicians or, or something, uh, and the mayor mentioned it in that clip, the um, CAR 87 and CAR 88, which, which I, I get is a partnership that involves police. But if they do bring forward more people with more of the that, that type of clinician background, does that help make the program better? I don't think that you can really address the issue of policing and mental health care just by adding on more nurses or social workers, right? It's a fundamental issue where we're sending the wrong tool to the wrong call. Mental health isn't a crime. It's not a crime to be in distress. It's not a crime to use medication that helps you feel better. But we continue to fund policing rather than investing in the peer-based response. Right. And so so what would that look like then? Because I know one of the arguments often used is that they're, they're, somebody could harm themselves or harm somebody else. And that's why a policing, uh, a policing is part of the response. So what, what would it look like, do you think? Or what do you think would be a better way of addressing that? Well, I've looked at the memo that VCH circulated to all of its staff, and it actually looks like in their second phase, which is 2024 and beyond, they are looking at, quote, upstream resources. And I think that that's what we should be investing in right now. That sounds like housing, access to safe supply, safe places where people can go and shelter, um, accessible bathrooms, all of these preventative things that get ignored. Um, leading us to only funnel money into the most acute crisis response. What about treatment? I think treatment is a great option if that's something that people want to pursue. I know that later on in the show, you're going to be hosting someone to talk about treatment and anti-drug user stigma. Um, As a lot of users advocate, dead people can't recover. So we actually need to be investing in access to safe supplies so people can even make the decision around treatment or not. Right. And that, that is one of the, the criticisms, I suppose, or I guess one of the questions being asked about the idea of decriminalization, even looking at where it has been brought in elsewhere, that if, you, that if you're going to do that, which is fine, and, and there's been kind of that de facto decriminalization, but without treatment, without the other options as well, or the other measures, that it, it doesn't really help. I think that decriminalization is part of a broader set of solutions um, that include, again, these basic things that a lot of us take for granted, right? Like housing, a safe place where you can lock your door and know that no one's going to come in, a place to go to the bathroom, a place to charge your cell phone, um, a place to use the internet, right? All of those are also preventative things that support everyone's wellness. Yours, mine, people who experience homelessness, people who experience mental distress. Right. And, and it's, I mean, it, it sounds too, and we've, we've been talking about this for uh, however long we've been talking about it. Like you said, the, the, this is another pandemic, uh, for, for lack of a better way of describing it. And, and still there are so many questions and so many things that need to be addressed. Uh, as, as a first step, and I know, like you said, this the, this perhaps isn't the best or it's not not everybody is in favor of the way the city is going is it at least though doing something or at least looking that we are we are looking at the issue and trying to find some solutions frankly no i think that the announcement of the funding the 2.8 million to vch is part of um 
the mayor and his party's overall 100 new cops, 100 new nurses strategy. Um, and again, that 2.8 million might sound like a big deal, but when you put it in perspective, it is less than 1% of the VPD's requested budget for 2023. So you do see how we're making choices. We're making ethical choices around what we fund and what we don't fund. All right. Uh, Minakshi, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for talking about this today. Thanks, Shell. As you've been hearing on the news, a very powerful and a deadly earthquake has hit southern Turkey as well as parts of Syria. And the death toll, unfortunately, continues to get larger and larger. We are still getting reports and learning more about what happened and the scope of the damage. But right now we're going to talk about what is happening on the ground, what we know so far. We are trying to reach somebody who is currently on the ground in Lebanon, but we've also reached Eli Bahadi who is here in Vancouver. Eli, thank you so much for making some time for us today. Hello, yes, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I understand that your parents are in Aleppo right now. Are they okay? Yes, correct. They are in Aleppo, and they, just like many other folks in Aleppo, they had to evacuate immediately um, when the earthquake happened. The first earthquake happened, they all went um, to the ground floor and outside of the buildings to for seeking safety first. Have you been able to talk to them? Yeah, multiple times. Um, my parents are in Aleppo and my sister is in Lebanon, and I've been in constant contact with them since uh, last night. At the, with the first one happening and then the second one happening as well, we they keep updating me and I keep uh, contacting them nonstop. Uh, it must be, I mean, it must have been um, great that you were able to contact them and hear their voices, but also just incredibly stressful knowing what they're going through. I mean, I can only imagine what they are actually going through. For me, it's just the shock and not being able to be with them. That's the major thing. But over there, just the shock of uh, uh, waking up to a major earthquake around, I think there was about 4.20 a.m., where everyone was sleeping, um, there was a major one about like 7.8 magnitude. So that that shock is more real than what I've experienced here. Uh, And Eli, I think we have now reached uh, your sister, Natalie, who, uh, like you mentioned, is on the ground in Lebanon. Uh, Natalie, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for taking some time with us as well. Yes, of course, sure. Um, I understand. Th- thank you guys for being interested in this. Yeah. Oh n- no, and well, well, and thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I understand. I know you're in Lebanon, but looking at some of the reports and the magnitude of this earthquake, there were reports that it was felt even as far away as Lebanon. Did you feel anything, or did you did you know when this quake had hit? Yes, we really felt that the the first one that happened at uh, 4.20 Syria time or 3.20 here, um, we really felt that it was quite strong and we actually also um, uh, evacuated the house because uh, we kind of panicked because um, the trauma of the... So basically where I was staying is an area called Ashrafiyeh in Beirut. So it's not very far from where the port, uh, the big port explosion happened in 2020 in Beirut. So, and with all the um, crisis and and basically the situation is not very settling here right now, 
everyone is on their nerves all the time, uh, and the trauma of the explosion was is not over in any way. So um, some of our flatmates really panicked, and we didn't understand what's happening, and like there was no electricity at the moment, so it was really scary. And we basically woke up to one of the flatmates screaming, um, like she was yelling and running around the house because. It lasted really long. It was like a 40-second, really intense shake. Uh, and for me, I had never experienced a shake this intense. And we didn't understand. And basically, we were just panicking, and we thought there might be an explosion. So we didn't know what's happening, and we, were, we weren't getting any news at the moment. Um, so, yeah, and we were like basically four um, girls alone in the house, so we didn't really know how to handle it. So we felt like... Maybe it would be the best idea to, to leave the house because we were also on the seventh floor. Um, so it was really intense and we didn't know what to expect. And in that moment, I found out that the source was from Aleppo. And then I found out that it was from Turkey, but it was really intense from Aleppo. And I got in touch with my parents and they sent me pictures of them being already on the street and going to pick up my grandparents and just connecting each other. Um, so at that moment, we had evacuated, not the, the whole building, but our apartment, just us being mm-hmm. panicked and, and, and not knowing what's happening. We just left. Um, yeah, and then uh, I just kept getting updates from my parents that it was really, really intense there. And my friends started sending me pictures of how things had, uh, like, bottles uh, on the floor and, and cracks in the walls and... Um, yeah, a lot of uh, minor destruction at the moment. And then while the hours kept going, I, I was receiving more pictures from my friends and family of um, kind of major destruction in the city, in the center, you know, in Aleppo. Um, yeah, and everyone stayed on the street. Like, I was talking to my parents the whole time. Uh, for us in Lebanon, at that point, like, we just stayed, my friends and I, we stayed at the, there's a hospital in front of us, so we felt secure there. So we just stayed at the um, security guy for like 30 minutes. And then when we calmed down, we went back upstairs. And then I was just keep uh, being updated by my, my parents and my friends. So basically at that point around 4.30, uh, 5.30, everyone that I knew in Aleppo was in the streets um, and trying to trying to um, find safer places to be in. I'm sorry, I was. I told my brother I might get emotional. Um, yeah, so everyone was just trying to figure out what to do, basically. Um, and then it was morning, and then at that point, I, I finally fell, fell asleep a little bit. And then I woke up at around 12 um, to news that there's a lot of destruction in Aleppo and around Syria and Latakia and in Hama and in a lot of different places. And even in, here in Lebanon, in our own building, there was some cracks in the walls and stuff. Um, yeah, so that's basically how it happened. And then uh, around 12.30 hour time here, uh, we felt another, another um, earthquake another shake it was uh, apparently there was a few that was felt after my parents when i called my mom she said there was there were non-stop aftershocks basically they were lighter than the one before but there were they there kept being stuff and then they sent me videos of the uh, of our home with a bunch of destruction as well and kept receiving all of that and um learning about 
people that we know that were stuck on the rubble um, and people trying to help. And yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, so basically, um, it's, uh, at around 12.30, another, we, when we felt another shake, apparently it was really, really intense in Aleppo as well. And as I learned in Turkey as well. Um, so yeah, basically from, since then, most people are in the streets. Um, most of my friends were gathering either in parks or in squares. My family went to the industrial city in uh, Aleppo, Sheikh Najjar, where we have a factory because um, there are less buildings there and there's more open spaces. So basically people need to be in spaces where there aren't buildings that might collapse on you. And basically why this is happening is that Aleppo has been through a lot of bombings throughout the last 10 years. Um, so the, the infra- infrastructure is very fragile in all of the buildings. So a small shake can cause damage, and this was a huge shake. And it caused a lot of damage, and uh, there's a lot of risk at the moment, you know. Mm. So um, people kept, like, everyone is just in the streets and in their cars. And at this, in, in the last couple of hours, um, some people, uh, a lot of people are staying on the streets uh, or in their cars or wherever they can be safe. And some people are going back home because it's really really cold as well there's a big storm right now um across the area and um so people are fine right now i think that there's still fear of another earthquake because we don't know and there's a bit of lack of information about this but i think like me rationalizing it i think nothing bigger is going to happen but at the same time the risk right now is the buildings and the infrastructure so we're trying to collect numbers of architects and engineers and people who can um, basically tell people if this is safe, this is not, if there's a crack in the wall. There's a lot of people who are really being helpful in this um, around Syria. And they're sending like pictures of the cracks or whatever uh, on WhatsApp to these um, people. And they're consulting them whether it's safe for them to stay or not. Um, so yeah, this is basically the situation. Are your parents able to to go back to their home? As far I know, like you said, people are kind of staying in open areas. But I would imagine it's it's nighttime there now. Are they able to to at least go back or get some shelter? They're able to go back, but they won't because there's also like damage to the house, so it's not going to be very safe. So they're gonna um, sleep. They they were sending me pictures right now of them um, cover the. Basically, they're going to sleep at, the, at our factory. So it is uh, safer for them to be there. They can go back home, but it's not safe, basically, you know. Right, right. And there's a lot of anxiety towards how tonight will go. <laughs> and, and Eli, when you hear this, and I know you've been talking to Natalie, and like you said, you've been talking to your parents and seeing the destruction. That's, it must be difficult as well, hearing this and, and seeing what's happening. Definitely, yes. I've been trying to just keep my friends and, and everyone informed about what what's actually the situation on the floor by sharing some reliable sources, uh, sharing some call to actions as well. There is a lot of uh, good things that are happening, as my sister Natalie mentioned. Uh, they're, they're collecting, you know, uh, artifacts to help out and make sure that no one is going to a very bad situation or damaged house so people can slowly go back safely. So I can see a lot of actions that is being done on the floor. I wish I was there to help out as much as I can, but 
from here, I'm doing as much as I can um, by just doing these things and sharing the information needed. What else do you think uh, Canadians can do or what can people do uh, hearing this and seeing this uh, from here? Personally, I would say reach out to your friends, people that you might know that are from Syria to get reliable sources to help out. There are so many organizations that are doing help. Uh, Probably make sure you're not just sending your money to any organization. There are some who might be collecting a lot. uh, So we need to make sure that we're diversifying the sources so that we can help different organizations supporting different parts of the countries, not just Syria, but Turkey, Lebanon, anywhere that was affected by this um, catastrophe today. So definitely reach out and make sure you're being contacted with the right sources. Don't just um, don't just learn from anywhere. Right. Make sure you're reliable sources. No, it's it's good advice. And Natalie, you mentioned as well, a lot of places don't have power. It's very cold there. What are your plans even for the next 24 hours? Um, basically, we came up to my friend's parents' house because we both, like at the moment that it happened, we both felt like we need parents. Um, and I'm just here in Lebanon for a week right now. I'm supposed to go back in a couple of days. But I'm going to try to go back tomorrow. But also, uh, since there's a storm, the roads might be blocked by snow. So I need to make sure that um, the roads are also safe and okay for me to go back. Um, But yeah, for for now, we're staying at my my friend's parents' house. I think it is safe. I don't think something's going to happen, especially here in Lebanon. Like, it is okay. But it's just like the the anxiety and the the accumulation of trauma that will not let us rest, you know. So basically right now it's more internal than um, external. Well, I'm uh, very glad that you're okay and that your parents are okay and uh, and dealing with this as we learn more and more about what is happening. Uh, we'll leave it there, but uh, Natalie, uh, thank you so much. Please stay safe and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and Eli, right. thank you as well for being here. Well, my next guest has written a comment. It's a special to the National Post, and it is raising a lot of questions. It's certainly getting a lot of feedback. And Adam Pankratz joins us now, also a lecturer in the Strategy and Business Economics Department at the Souter School of Business at UBC. Adam, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, nice to be with you, Jill. Thank you. Uh, your piece talks about uh, shame and stigma, and we've certainly been talking a lot about stigma lately because that is one of the reasons given as far as uh, the uh, proponents of decriminalization will will say and will argue that it's it gets rid of that stigma and it's time to get rid of that stigma. Uh, your piece takes a bit of a different opinion. Can you tell us a little bit uh, what you were writing about? Well, my view is that um, some things are deserving of stigma and shame and, uh, and certain behaviors, you know, whether or not we can try to understand root causes, um, that doesn't make the behaviors themselves any less destructive, any less harmful and any less deserving of scorn. And, you know, the situation on East Hastings, uh, when you go down and, and look at that, if you've driven down or you can, can't even really walk down there anymore, I mean, this is... This is a shameful situation for the city, and this is a situation that should be stigmatized. I mean, we don't want to see this. This is not acceptable, uh, an acceptable outcome for any policy uh, in any city. 
When I was talking about this as well with the chief coroner, she joined the show uh, last week and uh, it was on the, the, the day of, I think the first full day of decriminalization, but we were also talking about the overdose crisis and the number of deaths. And, and I asked something along that line in that we, we do have stigma for things like drunk driving. We have, there is a stigma to smoking now in, in many cases. Like there are things that have stigma attached. And the reason for that is because there are behaviors. I think people, uh, well, in the case of drunk driving, you shouldn't do it ever. And, and smoking, a lot of people are trying to quit smoking. Is it along that kind of line that, that, that you're talking about this as well, that, that, that a stigma isn't necessarily always so bad? Well, it isn't. And stigma and shame, I mean, that's how we as human beings uh, control the urges and unwanted behaviors of other human beings. And we've done that since time immemorial, right? And um, by saying out loud, like, this is not acceptable. We do not want this situation. And you should not uh, be proud of the fact that you know, you're using drugs or the fact that you're uh, stealing um, in the case of like San Francisco, where they are not prosecuting crimes under $950 of theft, and I've seen a skyrocketing in, in, in thefts there. We've seen the situation on Hastings get worse and worse, right? The idea behind the, the, the theory behind destigmatization is that it would improve the situation. But that situation that we have in Vancouver has gone, done nothing but go downhill. And it, it started maybe even 10 or 15 years ago and has just accelerated in the last three to five years. And I think it's time we say, no, this is, this is not an acceptable situation and, and we should be calling it out for the unacceptable nature that it is. Do you think things maybe have, have gone too far in that everything's being put in the same category in that I think when we talk about destigmatizing or, or taking that away, it, it, it used to be talked about in the sense of because we would never want somebody who is addicted and somebody who wanted to get help to be so ashamed of their addiction or so ashamed of, of what they were doing that they would feel embarrassed, they would feel too ashamed to ask for help, which makes a lot of sense. But I get what you're saying as well. It seems to have gone from that what was perhaps a good place of why we would want to remove the stigma to normalizing it and saying that all of this is okay. This is not an argument not to help the people who need it. And I say that uh, quite explicitly in the piece that these people um, who are who have drug abuse problems need help and deserve it. And there's been no question a big failing um, by the province. I mean, two 2,200 opioid deaths in the last year. This is an intolerable situation. Okay. Um, but we've lost the ability to distinguish between stigmatizing and shaming a behavior versus that person. That person is as worthy of help and is as valuable as any other human being. But the behavior is not. And the behavior is something that we need to uh, be very clear that a stigma and a shame attached to drug use or theft or vandalism, that's fine. We do not want that behavior in society. And, and there's, no, there's no shame in saying so. Uh, you mentioned as well in the piece uh, some of the, the history that we've seen in the homeless encampment that we saw in Strathcona. And uh, again, that behavior, like you said, not the person, but the, the behavior that, uh, that we're seeing in some of these. Um, can, you, can you explain that a little bit as well about uh, when we're looking at the, that behavior and if that also then becomes something that, uh, that uh, becomes normalized? Well, for a long time it did, right? It was hidden in a in a area of Strathcona, Vancouver, where only the only the residents who lived there saw it, 
And, um, you know, the politicians seemed basically uninterested, right? They, they, they wanted to push this away, that this was a one-off and this, um, uh, you know, was not, a, was not a problem. Well, you know, when if someone threatens your child with rape with a stick, I'm sorry, that is a huge problem. And you cannot just brush it off uh, as, as a politician and say that um, this is not representative of, of a larger issue. And we need to think about in a different way how we deal with this problem, namely by saying that the tent city is not acceptable, open drug use is not acceptable, and something, something needs to change. The approach we've been using is not working. What kind of a response are you getting to your piece? Um, you know, so far, it's, uh, it's been largely positive. I think there's a lot of people in Vancouver who feel this way. Um, and they're saying that uh, it's something that um, they're, they're happy that uh, someone has finally said out loud. And and was that what you were expecting? I know that in the piece as well, you 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 hinted at or put it in the piece that you you were also expecting people to perhaps pounce because it is something that that can be controversial. Um, yeah, I've been called a few names so far online, but uh, like you say, that was a little bit expected, and and I was ready for it. But I mean, I think we need to be able to have um, sometimes difficult conversations in the public sphere without resorting to name-calling. And uh, otherwise, we're never going to solve the very, very difficult problems that we have. Um, in this case, you know, namely what's going on uh, in Hastings and, and trying, to make, trying to make things better uh, by trying a new idea to an approach that, um, you know, has just been making things worse. All right. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's a busy day for you. So thank you so much for chatting with us today. My pleasure. Thank you.